Welcome to episode 46 of the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. I usually start these shows with a bit of levity, but you know, I sat down today at my microphone and I just thought it didn't feel right. My topic today is the atrocity that was committed in Israel on October 7th. And I think given the enormity of that subject... We should just get right into it. So, here goes. My guest this week is Dan Sinor, a former foreign policy advisor to the Bush administration and Mitt Romney, and the author of The Genius of Israel, a new book that will be released next month. I invited Dan on to this episode to talk me through what happened on October 7th, why it happened what the reaction was and has been to it happening, and what's going to happen next. Now, through a technical glitch that was entirely my fault, I don't have the part where I welcome Dan to the podcast or the bit where I thank him. So without sound effects or fanfare or introduction or outro, I'll just play our conversation in its entirety. Well, I wish I had had you on in better circumstances, but unfortunately, these are terrible circumstances. It's now been nearly three weeks since the heinous attack in Israel, and I have found analyzing it very easy in one regard and very difficult in another. The regard in which it has been easy is determining how to react morally. We've seen an enormous amount of evil and stupidity in response to this atrocity, and I've thought it was pretty easy to determine which side is in the right. But in terms of analyzing the situation in Israel, what happens next why there is this animosity, and so on and so forth. I don't know an enormous amount, and so I'm grateful to you for coming on to talk to me about it. So let me start with the biggest and most obvious question, which is what happened and why? Look, I can go pretty far back in history, but in the interest of time, I won't go too far back. But I think the key points are... 1967, 1987, and 2005, and then, of course, October 7th, 2023. In 1967, Israel fought a defensive war, the Six-Day War, in which it captured from Egypt the Sinai and the Gaza Strip. It also captured territory from Syria and Jordan, but that's less relevant right now. And then about 12 years after that, it signed a peace agreement with Egypt in which it returned the Sinai, the Sinai Peninsula, which at the time was three times the size of Israel. But Egypt wasn't terribly interested in getting back the Gaza Strip. It took back the Sinai, and in return for the Sinai, Israel and Egypt negotiated mutual recognition. Egypt would recognize Israel, recognize Israel as the Jewish state, recognize Israel's right to protect itself, and would have normal diplomatic and commercial ties. Egypt was not interested, as I said, in, in getting back the Gaza Strip. At the time, there was a large number of Arabs. They call themselves Palestinians, Palestinian Arabs living in the Gaza Strip. Now there's close to 2 million of them. Egypt had been occupying them up until 1967. After the 67 war, Israel was occupying the Gaza Strip. And even though Israel gave back the Sinai, Israel was stuck with the Gaza Strip. And it was... Jews and Arabs living between southern Israel and the Gaza Strip, it was sometimes tense, but usually actually not. Arabs would travel back and forth to southern Israel. Jews in Israel would travel back and forth to the Gaza Strip for entertainment, for basic services, for commerce. But there was this brewing sentiment within the Gaza Strip and the West Bank for political independence, for political sovereignty, for opposition to occupation. And this bubbled up in 1987 when 
there was what is called the Intifada, this uprising, a violent uprising. It started in the, part of it started in the Jabalia refugee camp in the Gaza Strip. And from 1987, over the subsequent close to 20 years, there were various efforts and fits and starts to try to reach some kind of accommodation with the Palestinian leadership to create a Palestinian state that would include the Gaza Strip and the West Bank and have a similar arrangement, in a sense, to what Israel had with Egypt, which is mutual recognition, a two-state solution, and a Palestinian state living side by side with the Jewish state. In 2005, after many, as I said, these fits and starts in the peace process that usually ended in tears and a lot of violence, the 1993 Oslo peace process, a terrorist organization called Hamas, which had had really come to life, was founded right around the Intifada in the mid-80s, was organizing suicide bombing campaigns against Israeli civilians while Israel was negotiating various agreements with the Palestinian leadership. This was happening throughout the 90s. It happened in the early 2000s when really at the peak of negotiations, at the peak at which Israelis, Israeli leaders were trying to help the Palestinians create a state and make tremendous concessions to the Palestinians, there would be these outbursts, sustained outbursts of violence against Israeli civilians, and these processes would break down. It culminated in 2005. So he said, 67, Israel takes the Gaza Strip. 87, the Intifada begins. After 87 on, there are these peace processes that never really go anywhere. And then 2005 is the culmination of a period in which the Israeli government, led by Ariel Sharon, then the prime minister, who was a throughout his history a very controversial right-wing Israeli leader, made the decision, we're not going to reach a bilateral agreement with the Palestinians, at least not on Gaza. We just need to get out. We're tired of Israeli soldiers being killed in Gaza. We are tired having this bitter relationship with this contentious relationship with Gaza that often gets violent. We want out. They want their own state. Let them have their own state. We don't have to negotiate it. We can just pull out. No more territorial grievance. It's yours. And so in 2005, the process began before 2005, but in 2005, Israel pulled out and said, here it is. It's yours. It's a strip of land. I've been there. If you just look at it geographically, topographically, it's a it's a valuable piece of land. You can imagine, I know it sounds crazy to say this, you can imagine it as a to be developed into some kind of tourist destination. It's right there on the Mediterranean. It had all this money, capital, development capital targeted to it from throughout the Arab world, the Sunni Gulf, throughout the European Union. People were invested, the numbers are staggering. Billions and billions and billions of dollars were invested in developing it. Israel did not want to take anything out of it. They just wanted their people out. There was about few hundred families that Israel forcibly removed from the Gaza Strip who were living in communities and settlements there. The Israeli army went in, pulled them all out, left their homes for the Gaza and Palestinians, left their greenhouses. The only thing they did was ask the Israeli Jews to take their belongings, and they dug up graves, which was traumatic for many of these Jews, and left and said, it's yours. The Palestinians could have done whatever they wanted with it. The Palestinian Authority was in charge of it. And they were in charge of most of the West Bank, and they were in charge of the Gaza Strip. The Palestinian Authority, led by Mahmoud Abbas, the Fatah organization, which is a legacy of the PLO. In 2007, two years after Israel's withdrawal, there was basically a civil war between the Palestinians, among the Palestinians, and Hamas, this fringe, originally fringe, and then became much more dominant Islamist faction, a sort of sister organization of the Muslim Brotherhood, staged a coup against Fatah and said, we don't want you in charge here anymore. We are going to take over. They had won some parliamentary elections a year before Hamas, so Hamas's political power was growing. They had won a bunch of parliamentary seats, taken over the majority in the Palestinian parliament. But the Fatah organization, the more quote-unquote mainstream organization, was still in charge, but Hamas wanted them out. They wanted them out of Gaza. They wanted to take total control of Gaza. And when I say a coup, it was a real coup. I mean, there are images you can still find online of Hamas thugs taking Palestinian Authority political leaders up on the roofs of buildings and dropping them 10, 20 stories to murder them. I mean, there's a total slaughtering of the of the Palestinian leadership, of the formal Palestinian leadership. Hamas drove them out and took over. And from 2005 to October 6th, 
really, the day before the war, Israel basically, I hate to say this, learned to live with Hamas in Gaza. Obviously, Hamas has it written into its charter that it swears to the destruction of Israel and the elimination of the Jewish people. It's in their charter. They're not cute about this. They don't mince, don't uh, sugarcoat it. They don't do it in a nuanced way. They're very explicit. You can pull up online the, the Hamas charter. This is their mission statement. And even though they maintain this mission statement, Israel believed it did not want to go full on into war in Gaza. They tried it. Last time they tried it was 2014, where they lost a lot of troops on the ground going into Gaza to try to calm down the security threat from Gaza. And so there were flare-ups over the last couple of decades, you know, where Hamas would fire off a bunch of rockets. Israel had this Iron Dome defense missile system that could prevent against rockets. Israel would conduct air operations to quiet down the threat from Gaza. They'd reach a ceasefire. Things would be quiet for a couple of years. It would flare up again. It happened in 2008, end of 2008, early 2009. As I mentioned, it happened in 2014. That was much more of a real ground invasion. It happened in May of 2021. It ha- I mean, basically every couple of years this was happening. And I think Israel had a security doctrine that was dictated by the idea or undergirded by the idea that it could kind of learn to live with this arrangement. It presupposed that some in Hamas were serious about governing Gaza, and they wanted some kind of practical relationship. And then October 7th just turned that whole security doctrine on its head, because what was not in Israel's playbook and was not in Israel's security doctrine was that Hamas, in a very comprehensive and organized way, would actually get serious about executing on their charter language and try to wage war against Israel in the most barbaric ways possible. And that's how we got here. What does Hamas want? Yeah, so that is a great question. Depends how you, it depends what you think Hamas is. Israel believed that, yes, there was this crazy dark ideology that permeated Hamas But at the end of the day, they're in charge of this territory. There are some among them, not all of them, but there's among them, there are some practical, if you will, politicians who just want to hold the place together and hang on to their power. And that is what led to this uneasy, practical relationship between the government of Israel and Hamas. I'm less confident of that. I think, I know the Israeli leadership believed that existed. And I think Hamas, in retrospect, played a very good game of letting the Israelis believe their own narrative of what Hamas wanted. But what we now know is two things. One, when I say death cult, when I say barbarism, I'm not, the, the, I'm not like, I really, I'm not trying to be rhetorical. I mean, I think they are so, I don't know if you've seen this audio tape that was just released uh, the other day of, yeah. this, of this kid's telling his mother how proud he was that he'd killed 10 Jews. I hate rehashing all these things, you know, the, the, the beheadings and the, and the systematic rape campaign in, in Southern Israel and the burning people alive and, and broadcasting it all, broadcasting it all. I know someone who's a, a teacher, an Israeli, and who lives in the U.S., who's in New York, who's a teacher who went on Facebook on October 7th and saw her on her niece's phone she, her niece who lives in Israel was, her phone was being used to live broadcast on Facebook Live, her niece's rape, the Hamas had, was raping it and broadcasting it. So when you, when you see all of this and how it's all documented, you could argue it's psychological warfare on Israel. It's, this, it's intended to just break Israeli, break Israeli will in the hope that Israel leaves, that, that Hamas has bought into this view that the Israelis, the Jews are really are colonizers, that they really are just occupiers. Because keep in mind, Hamas is not fighting for Israel to be out of Gaza. Israel's out of Gaza. They've been out of Gaza since 2005. The land that Israel is in possession of is not a dispute, and yet Hamas is still trying to drive them out. So what is that about? Yeah, is that because they want the land for themselves? Is it because they hate Jews and they don't want to live next to them? I mean, I... Noted in the clip that you refer mm-hmm. to that the guy who calls up his parents does not say, 
hey, dad, I've struck a blow in favor of that geopolitical problem that we both agree should be resolved. He doesn't say, hey, dad, I went into Israel and I began a process of decolonization. He says, dad, I killed 10 Jews. Jews, not, not settlers, not aliens, not fascists even, right. but Jews. How much does that matter and how much is this about other things i think that's everything and and i think that's that's that they have they've indoctrinated a couple of generations that it is not about the land it's not like i said that the land that israel quote-unquote still occupies that is on gaza's border is not in dispute hamas is not trying to take over shterot is not trying to take over the western negev it's not trying to take over these areas it is to your point about exterminating Jews. And so that's what I mean about this dark death cult. Now, again, I there was a commentary, an analysis immediately after October 7th where there was talk that they, the, the goal was to just drive Jews out of the area, that they have this colonialist view of history, which is, of course, the British were ultimately driven out of, quote-unquote, Palestine, pre-state Palestine. The French were driven out of Algeria, that if you if you make life hard enough for the Western occupier, they will eventually leave. And this was the ultimate form of psychological warfare aimed at driving the Jews out of this country that they're in. Now, first of all, there's, there's two problems with that. One is the Jews have nowhere to go. So unlike, you know, in Algeria, they could go back to France. In Palestine, pre-state Palestine, the British could go back to the UK. The Jews in Israel have nowhere to go. So that's the first point. The second point is, I, I've watched too much of this footage. There's a reveling in it all. There doesn't, there doesn't seem to be anything strategic about it. It's the glory of death. It's the glory of extermination. They're just taking so much joy in the experience of slaughtering Jews we throw around the term comparison to Nazi ideology in our in our popular debates and in popular culture and current events too easily. But in this case, it's totally appropriate because I, I don't know how else to explain so many people. And, and when I say so many people, if you assume 2,000 people were involved in the operation on October 7th, Palestinians, you have to break that down. So first of all, there's one group of the 2,000 that were the professional Hamas terrorists. You can see them in the videos are the ones that have some semblance of a uniform. They kind of look like these commandos and they clearly were trained. And then there's another group. And based on my conversations with, with Israelis and in the intelligence community there, there was this other group that were just like a mob that like just joined in on the fun that like the fence got broken down. The professional Hamas operatives went in and then there was like a whole bunch of other Palestinians that said, great, Let's go do it. Let's party. And they got their pickup trucks and their motorcycles and they followed in to get their own Jews or to rape their own Jews or to behead their own Jews. And if you think about 2,000 people, think about how many more people, even if they weren't directly involved in crossing the security barrier on October 7th, either knew about it from a planning perspective or, you know, in typical operation, any kind of military or quasi military operation for every one soldier or operative or commando or terrorist or whatever it is in this particular case goes over, there's usually three, four, five, six more, six additional people per person that are somehow involved in the planning. And then you think about the family and the friends. I mean, this guy calls his mother. So that's what's so unnerving is it's not just a, like a, like this little faction that's extremist. You start to think the that's what I mean about more and more people are involved or okay with this than we think. And you can you can hear that in that conversation with that guy's, you know, that phone conversation with his mother. She may have been worried about his safety. She may have thought it was time for him to come home for dinner, but she wasn't she wasn't horrified by what he had just done. And so to answer your question, I don't think Hamas has a strategic aim that you or I can get our head around. And, and now the Israelis are realizing they can't get their heads around either. They're not interested in territory. They're not interested in governing. They're interested in extermination. What would they say they want? Or if they can't do that because there's no strategic aim, what would those who make excuses for them say they want? Yeah, that's a great question. So, and this has been the hardest 
part for me of this entire saga since uh, this hellscape since October 7th is what I call the yes, but response to what happened on October 7th. And that is to say, whether it is some folks on the progressive left in the United States, some, although to be fair, not all leaders in the Arab world, in the Middle East, look at the comments over the last 24 hours of the Secretary General of the United Nations. You can even, you read between the lines and squint a little bit, you can even see some of this. You can kind of decode this in President Barack Obama's long, bizarre statement that he released the other day. It's this yes, but. Yes, what they did was awful, but they've been living in an open-air prison for the last number of decades. Yes, yes, rape and beheading and burning of children and everything that we saw on October 7 was horrific, but... Israel's got to figure out a way to improve the quality of life in the Gaza Strip. What do you expect from these people? They are sandwiched between Israel and Egypt. They don't really have a developed country of their own, even if they do on paper or, or, or have some kind of sovereignty. And this is because of Israel. And Israel has not made it a priority to look after the humanitarian needs of Gaza. Uh, Gaza is still dependent on Israel's electrical grid. Gaza is still dependent to some degree economically on accessing essential services from Israel. And life in Gaza is awful. And so even though it's not an occupation, it's still awful and it's Israel's fault. So that's the yes, but. And Israel can at will whenever it wants drop, you know, three or 400 missiles on Gazan buildings when it feels that its security issues are, are posing a threat to Israel and Gaza can't really do anything about it. So that would be the yes, but. I find every one of these arguments absurd. And I honestly thought, Charlie, having had to engage with these arguments over the last couple of, you know, 15, 18 years at various points, I honestly thought naively <laughs> that October 7th would change all this because we had on such clear like display here what Hamas is really about. And so can we just end the dance? Can we end the 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 fantasy that there's some there's some practical conversation we can have with Hamas? This is what they're about. And yet here we are. So you've been shocked. You've been shocked by the reaction in the United States and elsewhere. It blows my I, I'm really I, I and I didn't say I didn't feel that way at first. I am here we are now, some three weeks in, close to three weeks in. I'm um I I, I I'm shocked. I mean, I, I mean, we can get into this kind of where things go from here, but I, I'm shocked because there's, there's, there's a serious conversation in the West about a ceasefire. There's a serious conversation in the West about Israelis, quote unquote, controlling their rage. They need to control their rage. There's a serious conversation in the West that. Israel has to take into consideration the humanitarian needs of the Gaza Strip before it responds. It's it's like I, I I'm floored by this. Now I don't think those arguments kicked in in the first couple of days right after the massacre because I think everyone was genuinely so shocked by it. But as time has passed and as we've gotten some distance from it, you are hearing these arguments, and I find them. Just think of another country in the world that was just subjected to what Israel went through, which would be like the equivalent, like on a single weekend, of forty to 50,000 Americans being killed based on population comparisons and the way they were killed. And that to know that the, the organizer and executor of this mass attack attempted some kind of genocidal attack, this organization was still standing not six, 7,000 miles away, like what we were dealing with after 9-11, but like on your border, sitting there, a couple hours drive from the center of your country. And to just protect the basic territorial integrity and defenses and the lives of your country, of your citizens, after that happened, 
you are being told, well, wait, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Have you thought about the humanitarian needs? Have you thought about the collateral damage? Have you thought about whether or not they have enough fuel? Have you thought about your role in all of this? I mean, that is classic anti-Semitism, right? Classic anti-Semitism is to blame the Jews for the misery that they have gotten themselves in. And we can go throughout history, and it's a standard, every period in, in the history of anti-Semitism, the oldest hatred, there's always this, there's a version of a yes, but, yes, but, you know, but they 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 bear some responsibility for, they're too communist, they're too capitalist, they're too powerful, they're too connected, they're too white-collar oriented, not they're not one of the regular people. We can go on and on. Throughout history, there's always a there's the, the Jews bear some responsibility for for the their suffering. And that is exactly what we're seeing right now. Yeah. So in that reaction, you describe classic anti-Semitism. How much do you think within the United States of what is described favorably as anti-Israel sentiment or anti-Zionism is actually just anti-Semitism. How much of the political excuse-making is anti-Semitism? How much of the behavior we've seen on college campuses and in the streets of some towns and cities is anti-Semitism? And how much is something else? So let me preface this by stating which, you know, the obvious, which is legitimate criticism of Israeli government policy at any time is, of course, not anti-Semitism. I've been very critical of certain policies of the Israeli government over the years, including in the last year and a half. So I, I just think you can be critical of a government's policy, like you could be critical of any government's policy, and that's perfectly normal, and that's not anti-Semitism. Where it crosses the line into anti-Semitism is when you hold Israel, in this case, the only Jewish state on the planet that is trying to, as I said, provide for the security of the Jewish people, you hold that country to a standard that you hold no other country. That you you basically say, every other country can operate in these ways, but when the Jewish state does it, we are going to accuse them of war crimes. We are going to threaten them with sanctions. We are going to take them to the Hague or organize resolutions excoriating them at the UN General Assembly, at the UN Security Council. I mean, I can go on and on and on. We're going to isolate them. We're going to isolate them economically. We're going to isolate them diplomatically. We are even going to turn a blind eye to existential violence against them. That is a standard no other country is subjected to and no other country would tolerate. So why is Israel subjected to this standard? On its face, a form of discrimination. I mean, that is, is when you hold one country to a standard, you hold no one else, you're discriminating against that one state. So that to me is anti-Semitism. What is chilling, the post-October 7th, what makes it so chilling, is when you look at back at the Nazi crimes during the Holocaust, the Nazis went to great lengths to mask what they were doing. They were trying to hide a lot of what they were doing. They did not want the world to know what they were doing. This is the opposite. Hamas was proud of what they're doing and they want to broadcast it to the world. Secondly, there was this on the fringes of academia uh, over the last three or four decades. When I say fringes, I mean real fringes. There was this Holocaust denialism. Now, some of it actually was denialism, but reality, most of it wasn't denialism. In many respects, it was more pernicious or more clever, which was not to say the Holocaust didn't happen, but was to quibble with the facts or to challenge it. Well, it wasn't six million. It may have been more like one or two million. Yeah, they they weren't gas chambers, but yes, they did kill a lot of Jews, but they didn't do it, you know, like an industrial scale in gas chambers. It's like chipping away at the facts, but not denying it in its entirety. That was Holocaust, what is loosely called Holocaust denialism. This is not what we're what you're describing now. We're seeing on college campuses and these protests, and we're it's not denialism. They're not really denying what happened on October seventh. They're trying to legitimize it. That's what I mean by the yes, but they're saying these things happened. But you, defender of Israel, you neutral observer, need to understand why these things were done. And that's that is again applying selective standards to certain people and not others. And to me, it's a form of discrimination and it is anti-Semitism. Now, to get to your question, do the people directly involved with this stuff, do these morons on these 
college campuses know what they're actually trafficking in? Or is it just the in vogue thing to do in this intersectional world we live in and this, you know, the world is divided between David and Goliath and they've been convinced that the Palestinians are the David here and are they knowingly anti-Semitic? I don't know. Like, I don't know what's in people's heads. I don't know what's in their hearts. I think some are no doubt anti-Semitic and others are just willful, ignorant idiots who get swept up in the moment like they get swept up in a lot of moments that are in vogue these days. This is the trendy one. This is the popular one. But you don't have to be an anti-Semite to fuel an anti-Semitic culture, a culture of anti-Semitism. I mean, if you look back at periods of anti-Semitism throughout history, there are many people who didn't know better. Yeah. And so I almost think it doesn't matter. Yeah, let me ask you a horrible question about that. I've seen some people say, well, now I know how the Holocaust happened. Now I know how people let this occur, made excuses for it, subsumed it into other ideologies. Perhaps they didn't have hatred for Jewish people in their heads or their hearts, but they had something else. They had a anti-settler colonial philosophy, or they had aspirations for government or the status of the world that just so happened to work quite nicely with the Holocaust. Do you worry about that, or do you think that's an overstatement in 2023? Look, if you ask me, do I think there will be a Holocaust because of what we're seeing? (sighs) I, I, you know, I'm going to say no. My, by the way, I'm the son of a Holocaust survivor. I'm, I, I, uh, yeah, it's a horrible I, question. Right. So I, my mother's still living. She lives ironically at 85 years old in Jerusalem. She hasn't left her apartment in days. She moved to Israel in 2014 in the middle of the, of a major go- war in Gaza, ironically. So why do I say there isn't going to be another Holocaust? It's because there is an Israel. And there's a Jewish state, and so long as there's a Jewish state with a, an Israeli military and and is economically strong and technologically strong and politically, geopolitically strong in the world, there will not be another Holocaust. I've seen this, though, that what you're saying. Friends of mine, mo- mostly where I hear this, what you just said, that characterization, are from friends of mine on the left. So I have these friends of mine who are deep on the left, and they're Jewish. And they are starting to say exactly what you said. Now I understand why the Holocaust happened. And now I understand how it happened because they thought they were locked arms and good friends with all these like-minded people on the left. And, and now they're watching these people make their peace with what just happened on October 7th. And these friends of mine who are Jewish can't like they're, completely jostled like they can't get their heads around it and they've they've said exactly what you've said to me i mean they haven't said it publicly but they have have forwarded me stuff that they see on social media and they say and they see horrible things on social media from their friends and they say now i understand how the holocaust happened i don't believe that because there is an israel but i will say this i have never felt vulnerable as a jew in my kind of intellectually alert life, meaning when I'm like kind of thinking about the world and traveling around the world and engaged in the world, I've never felt truly vulnerable physically because of my Judaism. I've, I just, you know, combination of the influence and prominence, you know, the Jewish community and the accomplishments of the Jewish community in the diaspora, whether it's the United States or elsewhere, a flourishing Jewish state. I mean, it just, I really never think twice about it. October 7th has made me feel vulnerable. And so I I don't know, could there be another Holocaust? I mean, I'll tell you, I feel vulnerable. I have children who go to a Jewish day school. I am looking at the data on the rise in anti-Semitic violence. How how there's a rise in anti-Semitic violence in response to this attack on October 7th? I mean, that's just like, so... Did you think uh, that'd be in October 7th? Did that take you by surprise? Totally. Totally. Why did you think that would be one? Why didn't I think there would be one? Yeah. Uh, because I I bought into this idea, the security doctrine of Israel's that that they had this kind of practical working relationship with Gaza and Hamas. That yes, things were ugly, and there would be fighting from time to time, but it would never 
spiral out of control. October 7th, things spiraled out of control. I didn't think Hamas or Gaza wanted this. Hamas is going to be eradicated now. Like what? It, it, it was a total suicide mission, whether they realized it or not. So I just couldn't imagine they would want to move on something like that. And sadly, and this is the part that is most most upsetting for me, is um, look, there was a clear breakdown in Israel's intelligence capabilities and and military response and and the political leadership leading up to and and the day of maybe the day of we don't know yet and i'm trying not to dwell on those things because there'll be a time to dwell on them which is his, israel has a long history after wars of very robust accountability on what went wrong obviously that ended golda meir's campaign uh golda meir's career after the 1973 yom kippur war it effectively ended ehud omer's career after 2006 after the second lebanon war and over the decades, it's ended careers of senior military officers, intelligence leaders. So Israel's, they, they do these commissions of inquiry after wars. And there will be one after this. And I think it'll be devastating. And I, and I in my podcasts, in my media, you know, when I'm doing interviews in the media and my commentary, I really try not to get into what went wrong because there, there's going to be a time for it. And it shouldn't be when Israel's trying to get things right and figure out how to win this war they're in. But that said, I am really taken aback by um, by the breakdowns, and I think it's the Israeli leadership has been taken aback, and I think it is to some degree constraining their freedom of movement in terms of in their own minds what they do next, whether what, with the risks in the south, the risks in the north with Hezbollah, their understanding of the threat environment, the landscape has changed because they don't have total confidence in their understanding of all of it. I'll, I'll add one other factor that I probably should mention, and this is incredibly uncomfortable to mention, but I'll mention anyways. Israel has had a policy over the last number of decades to go to the ends of the earth to get Israelis taken hostage back. And they have willing to pay an enormous price to get Israelis who are captured back. It's almost like the part of their covenant with the citizens of Israel, particularly when they're asking most Israelis' sons and daughters to to serve. And the, obviously the famous case of uh, Gilad Shalit, who was an Israeli soldier who was captured in 2006 and wasn't returned till 2011. To get back Gilad Shalit, one Israeli soldier, Israel emptied out from its prisons close to 1,100 Palestinian prisoners and returned them to Hamas, basically, and a couple of other groups, and to get this one Gilad, one soldier back. And some of these Palestinians in these prisons were serving multiple life sentences. Some of them had been responsible, and some of them actually were the architects of the October 7th massacre. I have a friend, Lior Raz, who is the co-creator of the television show Fauda. He's the star of Fauda, too. And um, his girlfriend was killed. She was 19, 20 years old by a Palestinian terrorist who was in a stabbing rampage in Jerusalem and uh, in her neighborhood. And uh, he was in prison. And of course, he was released as part of the Gilad Shalit deal. And he moved back to Gaza, got involved working with Hamas and Hamas television. I, I write about this story in our new book. And Lior, for years, for years, and I'm not you know, representing things he hasn't said publicly, but for years, he had alluded to the problem with this policy of Israel broadcasting to the world that it is willing to go to these great lengths to get hostages back. And he, he believed at some point it would come back to really bite Israel in a major way because of the incentives it creates for Israel's adversaries to get hostages. So you can imagine, I've been thinking a lot about what Lior said and his co-writer, this guy, Avi, Avi Sakar, if I just asked, I just had my podcast, I asked him, do you think this policy was a mistake? Now, I can't be the one to say it was a mistake or not. I'm not serving the Israeli army. My children aren't. I, I don't, I'm not an Israeli government official that has to make these decisions about how you negotiate for the return of a citizen. I mean, these are gut-wrenching, extremely difficult decisions. But I've just noticed, even among Israelis, their concern about the incentives that this policy has created over time. And here we are, right? So Hamas captured over 200 Israelis. They probably thought they hit the jackpot. If we got 1,100 Palestinians back for one Israeli, imagine if we have a couple hundred of these Israelis, 
And you're just watching it play out, the pressure it's putting on the United States government, the Biden administration in terms of them wanting to slow Israel down as they negotiate for return of hostages that have an American passport. So I think that policy, too, is going to be subjected to a lot of scrutiny now. Well, that's a good segue to my next question, which is what's going to happen next? I think the Israelis are, for the very near term, are probably stuck. Now, they're not necessarily, they're not stuck in a position that they, from which they can't get unstuck, but the uncharitable assessment of what's going on is that they're stuck. The reason they're stuck is they are uncertain about Gaza, and they're uncertain about their own understanding of the, of the battlefield in Gaza. Keep in mind, Gaza, since Israel left in 2005, they've been quietly building this incredible underground tunnel operation. It's like a mall. It's like a, uh, as one obvious Akarov, an Israeli journalist, put it to me, he says it's like a the New York City subway system. Imagine that that underground in Gaza can go down eight, 10 stories down. It's not just little tunnels. It's like a maze down there. Cars, rooms, almost like buildings. It's like a mall under there. And the hostages are probably there. And Israel does not have a clear picture of what it is and to conduct an operation that wipes out Hamas's leadership means going down into those tunnels, into that underground subway system. And it puts a lot of Israeli lives at risk who conduct the operation. And so I think Israel has some pause about how to actually do that well or do that with minimal risk. Two, Israel is under enormous pressure from the U.S. government right now to let the hostage negotiation process play out? And does Israel want to be responsible for getting ahead of whatever progress? The U- I'm skeptical the U.S. is making that much progress, but be that as it may, they're being told there's progress, so they need to give time and space to get let the negotiation process play out. Israel has had to call up 360,000 reserves. They have not done a call-up like that I, I can't remember the last time in history they've had to do it. It's, you're talking about forces that are larger than the standing armies of the UK and France combined. They have to train a lot of these people up. They have to get supply chains moving. They've got to get supplies to them. There's supply shortages to service, to resource 360,000 soldiers. This stuff takes time. So there's a time issue. There's apprehension about what they'll be facing in Gaza. There's external pressure from the US government to let the hostage negotiation play out. And there's fear that if Israel goes barreling into Gaza, does the northern front get opened up and they suddenly find themselves in a two-front war? So that's the uncharitable view of how Israel is stuck. Now, the charitable view, which I don't necessarily subscribe to, but I'll at least articulate it, the charitable view is the reality is even if Israel wanted to go in, for the reasons I said earlier, they still need a little time themselves to get properly resourced, to get everyone trained up. In the meantime, they're pounding Gaza. I think it's something like I just read, something like 7,000 targets have been hit in the last two and a half weeks. So they are pounding Gaza and doing it quite strategically. So that building where there's a sniper hanging out who's ready for an Israeli ground invasion, they can take that building out and get rid of the sniper and you know, so there's there's a lot they could be doing to prep the landscape for a possible invasion. And every day they get to hit more targets, the better that ground invasion becomes, the more they squeeze those uh, Hamas commandos and Hamas leaders that are hiding underground to make it harder and harder for them to hide underground. So we over here may be impatient, even some of the Israeli public may be impatient. But the reality is time is on Israel's side. That's point one. Point two, in the meantime, the U.S., administration has sent these two carriers over to the med and they are keeping an eye on israel's northern front and have basically signaled if a northern front gets opened up the u.s is going to get involved so they're keeping a the u.s administration is effectively keeping a check on hezbollah from as hezbollah invading from the north all the while the u.s government assuming congress gets functioning soon is about to send Israel an extraordinary amount of military assistance and some economic assistance. So maybe it's not such a bad situation for Israel. They get to pound Gaza. They get to make an an eventual ground invasion a little more greased than it otherwise would be, maybe a little less messy. They've got the U.S. government on side 
helping in the north. They get credit from the U.S. to try and get out some of the hostages. And who knows, maybe Israel will get out some of its own hostages. And they're getting economic assistance in the process. So that would be the charitable view. I'm maybe because I'm paranoid. That's my Jewish realism in me. But but I lean towards the former, not the latter. Here's another unpleasant question I've heard posed. Why should Americans who are worried about high interest rates, inflation, the difficult housing market, the price of food and gas, care? Well, Americans who aren't Jewish, don't know anyone in the Middle East, why not look at it and say, terrible what happened, but none of our business. We're a long way away here in the US. We should leave it alone. If you leave aside the shared values that the U.S. and Israel have and the shared history that they have and the shared interests that they have, I would then just raise the the lens and just look at the broader geopolitical landscape and how it affects the United States. Over the course of three administrations, Republican and Democrat, the U- U.S. has basically been disengaging from the Middle East. It started in earnest with the Obama administration, it continued with the Trump administration, and more or less has continued with the Biden administration. The United States simply does not have the presence from a military standpoint or an intelligence standpoint in the Middle East that it once did, and that it did for most of the last couple decades of the 20th century and into the 21st century. One of the reasons the United States has been able to do that is because it has had allies like Israel who so we thought, have a world-class military and intelligence capability, and it's lockstep with the United States and would work to protect U.S. interests and keep the U.S. informed of threats to U.S. security. And Israel does all this without ever asking the United States to expend any blood, to be clear. And this is a very important point, and I hope it doesn't change as a result of this conflict. But one of the core tenets of Zionism going back to its founding and going back to the founding of the state 75 plus years ago, the Jewish people, the Jewish state will never again have to ask permission to defend itself or ask other people to risk their lives to defend Israel. The Israeli people in the Jewish state, the Jewish people would have agency. And so, yes, we'd like your help. And if you can send munitions and you can send Iron Dome and you can send money when we need it, That's great, but that's all we'll ever ask for. We will never ask you to risk your life to provide for the Jewish state's security. That's basically been the deal. And as I said, in a world in which America is getting disengaged from the Middle East, that's not a bad deal for the United States. And then I would add to that in a world in which, and this is clear, in a world in which there's clearly this alliance that's been deepening between Beijing, Tehran, and Moscow. And it used to be, oh, they have shared interests, those three capitals, but they're not really doing that much together or whatever they do together is kind of happenstance. That's that's no longer true. It is, and we can go through examples, but it is clear that Iran, Russia, and China are working ex- extremely closely together. In fact, in some, ver- some, some actions taken against the West and specifically the United States are very coordinated. And It is a scary world for Americans when you have these, in the case of Russia and China, these two monster countries, in the case of Iran, not not a monster in terms of size or nuclear weapons yet, but in terms of ambition, meaning it wants regional hegemony in the Middle East, to have these three countries effectively at war, hot war, cold war, we can debate, with the United States, and to have so much reach around the world. And so to make sure that tiny little Israel is standing and is an island for us out there in the Middle East at a time that this alliance that is so hostile to the United States is deepening ties and expanding reach globally and getting more and more brazen. I mean, there's there's U.S. naval assets in the Middle East right now, and, and there are Chinese naval assets in the Middle East right now. The Chinese have military bases, military presence. You look at Djibouti, you look at other parts of the Middle East, North Africa, China's there. So if we are worried about a world in which China's power is growing, Russia's power is growing, Iran's power is growing, and they're growing together with each other, 
countries like Israel that don't ask for Americans to risk their lives, but just ask for air cover at places like the UN, diplomatic air cover, ask for some economic assistance to help support its security, but in the scheme of things, a minuscule percentage of US GDP, I mean minuscule, is I think a pretty good bargain for the United States. You write in your new book about cohesion, or Mm -hmm. arguably about the lack thereof at the moment. In fact, the beginning of the book, I think the first line in the whole book, you write, as this book goes to press in the summer of 2023, Israel is embroiled in a conflict not against external foes, but within itself. Now that Mm. has changed. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes people will say in an American context, Do you remember how united we all were after September 11th? I have some problems with that as a thesis in that I don't like the implication that this was a worthwhile thing. I would much rather not have had 9-11 and had a disunited country. But it is true that for a period, at least, Americans came together. Do you see... Israelis having responded to what happened on October 7th by going back to a more durable cohesion? Do you think it's going to be temporary as it was in the United States? Is this going to change the way that Israelis live and interact with one another and debate politics? Where are you at on that? I think the temporary part was what Israel was experiencing before October 7th. That was the outlier. It wasn't the only time there's been this outlier. In our book, we go through Israeli history and we show at various points in Israeli history that Israel has had some very deeply, deeply divided domestic political moments, whether it was the judicial reform debate, as we just saw in 2023. But the way the commentators, both in Israel and outside of Israel, would talk about 2023 as though this is like We've never seen anything like this before. My co- Saul and I, my co-author and I were like, this is nonsense. Did you see what happened in Israel when Israel tried to disengage with Gaza? You had you had massive border-to-border protests against Israel's disengagement withdrawal from the Gaza Strip. Or you look at what happened after Israel's prime minister, Yitzhak Rabin, was assassinated by an Israeli Jew, where half the country basically blamed the other half for the political environment that led to, or some would argue that created a culture where something like that could happen. Or you look at the debate in the 1950s in Israel over the Israeli government's decision to t- accept reparations from the West German government. Deeply divided protesters stormed the Knesset, Israel's parliament. Menachem Begin, who was in the opposition at the time, called for the violent overthrow of the Israeli government. Ultimately, it didn't happen, obviously. I mean, I can go through almost every decade or decade and a half, there's been a moment of great political divide in Israel. So we're not arguing in our book that Israel is immune to domestic political debate. And we're also not arguing that it takes an external threat and an external crisis like they're facing right now to protect against it. What we argue in the book is Israel, unlike the United States, has what we call societal shock absorbers, that there are some aspects of Israeli life that are a sort of glue that kind of keep the country together. So even when things get hot politically, the country does not truly tear itself apart. And I'll, and I'll just give you a couple of examples. One, sure. we have a chapter in the book that we call Thanksgiving Every Week, which is about the Shabbat, the Sabbath. Now, when I ask Americans, can you give me an example of something that most Americans do with their families and their friends and their community that they feel that they're sharing with a, na- it's like a national ritual that most of the country is doing when as well when they do it. And of course, whenever I give this question, the answer I usually get is Thanksgiving, which is you go by most American homes on Thanksgiving, you'll see people gathering multiple generations. It's, it's pretty consistent regardless of religion. It's an American national ritual. Then I say, okay, give me a second one. And that's where they get stuck. Now, I often, the second one I often hear is the Super Bowl. Yeah, I was going to say the Super Bowl. I know, I know, and I know you're a fan, and I am too, okay? So trust me, I'm big on Super Bowl parties, and we we go big. We big the Senor home, big deal Super Bowl parties. So there's the Super Bowl. 
And then I say, okay, well, give me a third. And that's where they get stuck because they can't really come up with a third. And in Israel, because the national civil calendar is shaped and undergirded by a religious calendar, the Hebrew calendar, there are Jewish holidays throughout the year and including every week that kind of hold the country together. Now, what do I mean? So there's the Sabbath every Friday night that begins every Friday night. You go by most Jewish homes in Israel on a Friday night, and you will see in the home people having a sort of, depending on their degree of religiosity, religious observance, you will see some kind of Jewish Shabbat dinner, Sabbath dinner with family. People are with their families on Friday nights everywhere you go in Israel. Again, usually multiple, two, three, sometimes four generations and friends. And it's everywhere. It's over. I mean, we looked at a bunch of studies, well over 70, in some studies, 80% of Israelis have a traditional Friday night dinner with their family and friends every single week of the year. And they know that most of their country is doing the same thing. And again, if you're very religious, you do it differently than if you're very secular. But it's this sense that the whole country slows down, takes a breath, is with the people who matter most to them, and there's a moment of of communal and family time and reflection. In the book, we go through these examples. It's not just Shabbat. It's the way Israel honors its fallen, its Memorial Day, and how it celebrates its Independence Day. Interestingly, Israel's Memorial Day and Independence Day are back-to-back. So they literally are on one day is Memorial Day, and the next day is Independence Day, and the Memorial Day in Israel bleeds into Independence Day, and they the two are linked because the Israeli culture is you can't celebrate your independence without first honoring your fallen because the fallen are the ones that made the independence and the freedom possible. And the way they celebrate or, or honor their fallen on Memorial Day, tragically in Israel, there are these air raid sirens that you've been hearing about and seeing in the news during this Gaza war where every time there are rockets, these sirens go off. It's a national air raid siren system and everyone goes into their bunkers. But on two other days of the year, there is a peaceful air raid siren process. One is Memorial Day, and one is on Yom HaShoah, which is Holocaust Remembrance Day. And for two minutes, these sirens go off, and everything and everybody in the country stops. I mean stops. There's these images of of people getting out of their cars on highways, and they just step out of the car, and the traffic just is frozen, and people stand next to their cars, Children get up out of their classrooms. People get out of hotels and restaurants. Literally, the country comes to a complete stop for those two minutes while you hear those sirens. It's one of the most moving experiences. And so what Israel has done is it's created these moment after moment after moment, whether it's something that's not religious-based, like Memorial Day, or is religious-based, like the Shabbat and many other holidays, that it it doesn't let people spin too far apart from one another. It keeps people together and it keeps people in some, it's look, Israel's a a very argumentative society. It's deeply diverse ideologically, politically, ethnically, but they have this structure to it that I think creates some kind of cohesion. And then I I can go on and on, but I, I will mention one other thing. I don't underestimate the role of national service, the role of the military. I'll give you an example. So there's this guy we quote in the book extensively named Mika Goodman. And Mika Goodman is a public intellectual in Israel. He's like, I'm trying to think of what his equivalent would be in the United States. Big, sort of, he has the most popular political podcast in Israel. He has the most popular podcast, period. It's a political podcast. He's got the, you know, he writes these books explaining complex religious concepts to a secular public. He's a real thought leader. And Mika told me that after Trump was elected in the United States, he was visiting the United States or meeting with peers of his at Harvard or something or, you know, in the academic world, the, the equivalents of him, but in the United States. And he's having this discussion and, and these academics are talking about the Trump voter. Well, I spoke to a Trump voter and he said this. Well, do you know, I saw a study of the Trump voters and they think, and he was astonished because the whole conversation was this sort of this clinical conversation about this lab study of this other. And he said he just couldn't relate to it because in Israel, sure, he has people he fiercely disagrees with politically, but they're in his life. They're in his army unit. I mean, when I talk to people in the military, everyone goes 18, 19, 20, they're thrown into these units. So you have the son of like a tech 
entrepreneur who's a billionaire sitting in the same army unit with the son of a cab driver. One's Ashkenazi Jew elite European. The other comes from a North African family. One's, I mean, they're from all walks of life. They're all intermixed and they all go through these experiences. It doesn't train them to all think alike, but it does create a social environment that starts to begin to feel familial and communal, and it makes it harder to really think of people as the other. And so it doesn't mean that at moments there aren't these great divides, like the one Israel just went through before the Gaza War, before October 7th, but it does mean when things get really, really divided, it never really spirals out of control. And our argument in the book, because we wrote that line that you quote at the peak of the protests, is it's not going to be that bad. Everyone calm down. So we weren't saying Israel needs the war from Gaza to bring down the temperature. We were arguing in the book the temperature is going to come down on its own. Because of what you describe as the genius of Israel. Yeah. Let me finish on a domestic American note. Or at least let me ask you whether that is an appropriate way of processing this question. Americans, like any other people filter the world through themselves and they filter foreign policy through domestic politics. You mentioned Iran as a player within this conflict. President Biden is pursuing an Iran deal of the sort that Barack Obama pursued. He announced recently that he was giving $6 billion to the Iranians. President Trump has suggested that this attack in Israel would never have happened under him. How much of what goes on in Israel and Gaza is directly linkable to what happens in America? And how much of that is just cultural narcissism on our part? Friends of mine who have studied Hamas and Hezbollah, in fact, I'm, I, I did an episode of my podcast on the history of Hamas. I'm about to do one. I think I'll drop the next couple of days on the history of Hezbollah. Friends of mine who are deep in the history of Hamas, deep in the history of Hezbollah, deep in the history of Iran, none of them could have imagined, they say, they say that they do not believe the leadership of any of those entities could have imagined that within days of this war launched on Gaza, that the President of the United States, the Commander-in-Chief of the most powerful army military in the world, would be in Israel, in wartime Israel, sitting in a wartime cabinet with the leaders of Israel, brainstorming and thinking through how Israel is going to make its decisions, and would have said the things that President Biden said publicly, and that that probably threw them off. So in that sense, I do think what happens in America, what America does matters. I would also say that I think, I'm really not trying to make a partisan point here. I do think the last number of years, uh, particularly under the, during the Obama and, and um, Biden administrations, the efforts to try to figure out how to, in a kind of real politique way, reach some kind of arrangement with Iran and kind of learn to live with a powerful Iran, potentially an Iran that has some kind of nuclear capability, has given players in the Middle East a lot of, like a spring in their step. And I do think it's given the leaders in Iran that sense, and the leaders in Iran that are backing, and the funders and the ones arming those in players in Hezbollah and Hamas, it's, it's conveyed a sense of confidence, and we're on the move. And so I do think it matters. Now, do I think... AOC or Rashida Tlaib popping off the way they've popped off is a factor in what happens in the region? No, it's offensive to me as an American Jew. I'm repulsed by it. And I think they're playing a dangerous game in the United States because when they start throwing around terms like calling Israel a genocidal and Israel an apartheid state, if they're a bad actor, anti-Semites in the United States who are already annoyed with Jews, and then they hear a, a congressperson talk about Israel being guilty of apartheid and the apologists for Israel, the defenders of Israel being complicit, it gives them, I think in some deranged minds, free reign to do deranged things. And I think that contributes to the violence, the the rise, the real dramatic rise in anti-Semitic violence in the United States. 
So as an American Jew, I think that matters. But I don't think those statements matter as much to what's happening in the Middle East. I do think the big stuff matters. I do think the lengths the Obama and Biden administrations went to to try to get a nuclear deal with Iran. I do think the massive negotiation of, you know, the releasing of the $6 billion in order to get the three hostages back from from Iran, Matt, I think some of the big stuff that our administrations do sends a statement over there about when's a good time to strike. But I, um, I college cr- campus craziness and all that, I, th- I think is probably less consequential. And that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to Dan Sinor for coming on the show. Thank you to you for listening. And we'll see you next week.